Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm your host, Sheila Hamilton, and I'm here with our engineer, John, who always makes us sound great. Hey, John. Hello, Sheila. September is National Alcohol and Drug Recovery Month, and I've been waiting for so long to partner with someone on a series of conversations about our often very complicated relationship that we have with drugs and alcohol. That's why I'm so excited to share with you a series of dynamic conversations in partnership with Fora Health Treatment and Recovery. I got to know Fora Health years ago at a fundraising event when they were still known as DePaul Treatment Centers. Yeah. Fora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Fora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details. So let's dive into episode two with Dr. Awan Riki, the outpatient medical director at Fora Health. Dr. Riki is working to expand access and improve quality of care for people who want to change their relationship with substances. I loved hearing about how her experience as a primary care physician changed her relationship to substance use disorders and the way that science is finally catching up to better treatment alternatives. Welcome, Dr. Riki. It is so wonderful to have you join us today. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, just from that introduction, you can tell you have a really extensive background in primary health. And I I want you to talk a little bit more about how you began to see addiction as such an enormous barrier to people's health and well-being. Yeah, I became a primary care provider to work with patients, families, and communities to improve their well-being. And I did that for 20 years. And I saw substance use becoming a larger and larger challenge for my patients in their communities. And the lack of real caring treatment, treatment that was compassionate, that focused focused on the client and their own goals. I had lots of people who would come and say, I really want to be in treatment. And in fact, there was one particular moment. I remember I was working at a clinic called Outside In, and I had a young person sitting in front of me on the exam table, crying, saying, I so want to get off of heroin. I hate it. I want to stop and I can't get into treatment. I've tried and there's nothing available. And that was the moment when I decided I needed to focus more on this kind of care. I had done it as a part of my practice previous to that, but I really, I realized that the community needed providers who could focus on substance use treatment in a kind, caring way in order to help people access that treatment that they so desperately needed. Oh, wow. Well, the recovery movement is so um, grateful and I'm sure very, very pleased that you made that crucial decision back then. I want you to talk a little bit about the kind of various drug addictions that you're dealing with right now at Fora. And also, if you would just describe kind of the level of danger inherent in each of those. Well, at Fora, we offer treatment for all types of addiction, um, and we have a wide variety of treatment. We have residential treatment, we have withdrawal management, which is known as detox, outpatient treatment, which would be meeting with a counselor for groups and one-on-ones, and also we offer medications for substance use. Talking about the danger of each substance is challenging because it depends on so many factors, how much the person is using, how long they've been using, what are other medical conditions they may have, but there are some things that we can say about danger and use. 
there are a few substances where if you try to stop using them on your own without medical support, you can die from the withdrawal or you can have very severe medical complications. And those are specifically alcohol and benzodiazepines. So thinking about the withdrawal from those, those are the most dangerous. However, the day-to-day -day use of alcohol and benzodiazepines, death is less likely. The day-to-day -day use of heroin and other opioids, especially in combination with things like benzodiazepines, can be deadly. We know that we have a significant challenge with overdoses of all drugs, but especially opioids in our country. So it's hard to say exactly which one is the most dangerous. They're just dangerous in really different ways. And we are so lucky to have some really good medications that we can use for people who are using substances. For alcohol use, we have several different options. The most commonly used medication is one called naltrexone. It comes both in a pill form as well as a monthly injection, and it reduces cravings and it helps people reduce their use. I, really, I think of it as turning down the dial on the voices that are saying, go drink, go drink, go drink. Mm. Um, it just, it quiets them. It doesn't necessarily stop them, but it makes them easier to cope with. And it allows people to move on with their regular life and not have quite such a compulsion to use alcohol. For opioid use, and that can be heroin, pain pills, fentanyl, we have several medications. There's methadone, which a lot of people know about. You know, you hear about methadone clinics, people go to a methadone clinic every day uh, and get their methadone. And that's a really useful treatment. It is highly effective. Um, it replaces the opioids in a person's body so they don't have cravings. There are some challenges with methadone in terms of it's a challenging treatment, having to go frequently, not necessarily every day after you've been there for a while and establish some stability. So we have a newer medication called buprenorphine. Uh, it comes with the brand name of Suboxone or Subutex are the more common brands. And this medicine also takes the place of opioid in your system, whether that's heroin, fentanyl, or pain pills like oxycodone. And it significantly reduces cravings and removes the withdrawal symptoms that people have. It helps people feel like they're regular selves. Hmm. Because if you're someone who uses opioids on a regular basis, um, when you stop using them, you feel significant withdrawal. You don't feel well. And so people use opioids in order to feel well, to feel normal. Right. And the beauty of buprenorphine is it helps people feel well and it reduces their cravings. Can, can I stop you right there and ask how you answer a lot of critics who say, isn't this just shifting the reliance on one medication to another? What do you say to those people? First of all, substance use conditions are medical conditions. We know there are brain changes that come with substance use. There are brain changes and genetic changes that increase someone's likelihood to misuse substances. And then there are changes as a result of that use. Yeah. And so it is a medical condition and it is a medication for a medical condition. Mm. I think of it as like insulin for diabetes. Would you say, oh, you can't take insulin for diabetes or, or you, you ate a cake last night, we're gonna cut off your insulin. Right. Um, so it's really a different, it is a profoundly different concept than one medic, you know, one trading one drug for another. The other piece is that for some people, that medication is only one part of the picture of their treatment. Mm -hmm. They may also want to be attending community groups. They may be working with a counselor on one-to-ones or other um, substance use groups. It's not necessarily a substitution of one drug for another. It really is a medication that treats a condition. And do some people get to take less and less of that drug as they go further into their recovery? Is there a tapering down plan for many of the people who have started on Suboxone? 
Absolutely. And that's really usually driven by the person's goals and their desire to be on or off the medication. One of the things I worry about is when that desire to taper is driven by somebody outside of them, whether it is a family member who says that drug for drug, you're taking another drug. Yeah. If it's a person's own choice, we're much more successful and they're much more successful in not using substances after they get off of the buprenorphine. Wow. But absolutely. People can taper. They can be on it. We usually recommend six months to provide a basic level of stability. Yeah. And then people could stay on it for a long time. Or if they felt like tapering off was more in line with their goals, we absolutely would support them in that. So what you're describing for us, Dr. Riki, is this incredible variation in how people need to be treated and what we need to look at. It's like an individualized approach to treatment. Why is that so important rather than this one size fits all that we used to hear about? Well, let's say I had diabetes and I went to my doctor and they said, here's the diet that you need to follow. This is exactly what you need to eat every day. What if it didn't fit with my culture? It was not in my budget. The person who was cooking wouldn't want to cook those things. I wouldn't follow those recommendations. And the same thing is true of substance use is that people have their own goals and they have their own settings in which their lives exist and their opportunities to change their substance use exist. And so we have to tailor our programs to meet those people's individual goals. Another characteristic of substance use, which makes it even more important that we tailor programs is that many of the people who use substances have a history of trauma, have untreated mental health conditions. And so bringing those pieces in, we need to be aware of that trauma, make sure we don't make it worse, practicing what we call trauma-informed care, and make sure that we design a program that fits with their lives and provides them with the greatest opportunity to make those changes. That's awesome. So what would you say in all of the years of treating patients and hearing everyone's stories that the hardest part of recovery has been for most people who have abused drugs, especially for some time? That's such a good question. I think ultimately it is stigma. Stigma and shame are ever present in most people's experiences of substance use and sometimes recovery as well. Our society tells people who use drugs that there's something wrong with them, um, that they're dirty, that they're a failure, that they don't have self-control. Mm. When we look at the brain changes, when we look at the genetic factors, we know that in fact, that's not at the root of a lot of people's substance use. Often it is mental health or trauma that has been unaddressed. We have failed to support people in the, what, in the ways that they need in order to feel a confidence and a richness in their life that allows them to move forward without substances. I think the shame and stigma makes it so hard for people to acknowledge their substance use, to talk about their substance use, and to seek out treatment. And so when we talk about that shame, there are a lot of things that we as community members can do to reduce that shame and stigma and ways we can support people in talking about their substance use and perhaps engaging in treatment. There's this incredible phrase that we're all familiar with because it's been so overused in movies and books and everything where, you know, the person hits rock bottom and then they're finally ready to change their life. Is that an accurate description? And do people need to hit rock bottom before they seek help? No. <laughs> I pause because it's such a complicated question. Yeah. If you were to ask someone who was at what we think of as rock bottom, whatever that means, if we were to say, how many times have you been interested in changing your substance use? How many times have you tried to get to treatment and not been able to? Mm. I would bet most of them would say lots and lots of times. Mm. And so there are many steps along the way in which people think about changing their use. But because of that shame and stigma, 
And because we don't have great treatment resources available, they're not able to connect that desire with actually being in treatment. And, and you told me a really interesting story where everyone's rock bottom is different. Like you mm -hmm. might have the housewife who gets a DUI for drinking with two glasses of wine in her and she's like, that's rock bottom. And while another person might go to jail and might be on the streets and houseless and they haven't hit rock bottom yet. So the, mm -hmm. the descriptor is not very good for the rest of us trying to understand it. Well, there's lots of like little steps along the way that we may miss as people's efforts to talk about their substance use and maybe engage someone and depending on the response they get, they continue. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone says, whoa, I drank more than I planned to last night. I'm not yeah. feeling very good today. Yeah. And their friend says, oh my God, why did you do that? As opposed to, wow, that sounds scary. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Or if someone says, I used meth at a party the other day, I'd never used it before. And now I can't stop thinking about using it again. And how do we as a community respond to that? Are we open and kind or are we judgmental? And that can really determine whether or not people move forward with engaging in conversations about their use. I'm super interested in what an appropriate response would be to both of those scenarios you just said, Dr. Riki. First and foremost, they're hard conversations. They can be, they're not always, but they can be really hard conversations, especially if it's a little farther down the line and that person's substance use may have had a negative effect on you or family yeah. member or community. So just acknowledging that they're, they can be challenging conversations and it helps a lot to go in with some preparation. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that I would suggest for preparation is thinking about why it's important to you that this person change what's happening and whether it is, or whether you simply want to reflect to them, Hey, I'm concerned. Yeah. And usually it's because you care about that person. And sometimes it's hard to remember that if you're mad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can center yourself and you're caring for that person, they're gonna know that, they're gonna feel that and they will feel much more comfortable talking about something that seems perhaps very scary yeah. um, or very shameful. I just love the kind of reframing that you've done for us, even from the beginning point of the conversation about what you're using and why, because we bring our own anxiety to it, we bring our own judgment to it, we bring our own hopes and dreams for what that person could have done rather than what they're doing, but that is all us. You just pointed it out. It is all us. It's very interesting to me. I want to talk a little bit about the disappointment. I've had it in my family where we've sent loved ones through a very expensive treatment program. And then six months later, they relapse and they're back in. So talk to me about why it's so common for people to need several times in recovery before they're actually successful. One of the ways to think about addiction, I think about paths through the forest. And if you have a path through the forest that you've walked only once or twice, you're not going to see a lot of the brush beaten down, the tree branches broken a little bit. But if it's a path that you've worn down over and over and over again, and in this case, worn down by repeated use of a substance, it's not going to go away all of a sudden just because you've done one thing. You planted some seeds. Let's say you plant some grass seed. It's going to take a while for that grass to grow back. Mm. It's going to take a while for someone to stop the conversations that they may have in their brain where their brain really wants them to use those substances because it it's what makes them feel better in the moment, even though they know in the long run, it won't. Right. 
And then building skills. So skills, kind of recovery skills, so that if you're presented with the opportunity to use a substance, you can say no. If you're having stress, how do you respond to that stress in a way that's different than using that substance? And also building community, building a support system of people who aren't using substances or support you're not using or your reduced use of substances. So all of those pieces do not fall into place just because someone has gone to treatment. Treatment is the beginning of the many steps necessary for someone to kind of rebuild their life and adjust their brain patterns in order to be able to sustain that recovery. And how do you prioritize the person's mental health condition when they're going through all of these things, especially for people who are still actively using? Often I don't have a choice. My patients make me prioritize it. They say, you know, I have this untreated anxiety or I'm super depressed or COVID. Oh my God, COVID is causing me so much unbearable anxiety. So often my patients will bring it to the forefront. And I also try to make sure that we discuss it with every patient that I have. How is your mental health, whether it's depression or anxiety or trauma, PTSD? Um, there's so many layers that can happen for a person who's using substances. And often that mental health condition may predate their use. It might be related to their use. For example, meth use can induce psychosis, mm. um, or it might be related to things that happened while they were in their use. So the likelihood of trauma is higher in people who are using substances. So there are all these pieces that we need to address. And ultimately, the care for folks with both substance use and mental health conditions is similar than the care for folks with mental health conditions alone. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are nuances about those the complex interactions between substances and mental health. Yeah. And a, an expert dual diagnosis clinician, counselor, can help people tease out those pieces and figure out how they can address them. But the medications I use are generally the same. And my patients generally are able to take those medications, not too different than the rest of my patients. Like I forget to take my medications sometimes, um, just as all of my patients do. And just because someone is actively using, it doesn't mean they can't follow up with treatment for their mental health. Often people may be more motivated because they know that their use may be related to their mental health condition. Wow. Do you have any way of guessing or even anticipating who might be more successful in recovery than who might be unsuccessful? I used to think I did, but I was wrong. <laughs> uh, I love uh, and I learned when people say this and then tell the story. It's so great. I know. And I learned and I learned, I learned, I learned over and over and over and over again in working with substance users that you just don't know and, and first of all, so success really is ultimately defined by the person who's using. And success can be anything from switching from injecting to smoking a substance, stopping altogether, switching from heroin to marijuana, which is ultimately safer. So success is really a complicated concept in substance use, and it can mean a lot of different things. But even with that, I simply cannot predict. And I learned, I learned that most notably when I was caring for a couple and I will change all of their identifying information. But honestly, one person, I was like, this person's going to be successful. This person is not. I was a little judgy. Um, I thought I knew and I was wrong. The person who I thought was going to persist in their substance use. And honestly, I was worried that they were going to die from their substance use, managed to enter treatment and is in long-term recovery. Wow. And the person who I thought who seemed to have more motivation, seemed to be more kind of had things more together, as we say, mm. um, ended up with persistent use and I've lost touch with them. So I learned from them that there's no way to predict. Wow. You just have to have equal hope and also that kind of empathy and compassion that you show for all of your patients, regardless of how they're presenting, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a, it's a big life lesson in um, how not to judge. I love that you're, you get to do it every day. I'm very curious about the things that you would say to our audience who are interested in being less stigmatizing. And so perhaps the things that they can be wary of saying both around addiction and maybe around recovery. Can you talk about some mm -hmm. of those stigmatizing statements? Yeah. And a lot of it is about the words that we use, referring to someone as an addict rather than a substance user, mm -hmm. referring to someone I mean, and there are a whole bunch of worse words that we use for people who are using specific substances, ones that I don't even feel comfortable saying. Also talking about relapse. Um, relapse is a stigmatizing phrase or term. Mm. And so we now use recurrence of use because oh, okay. it has less um, stigma associated with it. Wow. Another example, and, and I'm learning on this one, is the word overdose. Mm. So overdose, again, has a stigmatizing connotation in part because it implies that there may be some control over that a yeah. person overdosed when in fact perhaps they took what was the drugs they thought they always got but someone had put fentanyl in their drugs oh my gosh that i'm so glad you said that especially right now with the increase in fentanyl on our streets and people going well he overdoses if it was something they could have managed by knowing a proper <laughs> dose you know oh my gosh Right. Yeah. That Make is, sure you get the right dose right of your dose. Drug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that is really interesting. And, and so you're, you're talking about when you're articulating your concern, is it okay to say, I'm really worried about you. I wish you could get to a safer place where you could begin, you know, your curiosity about recovery and how can I help you do that? Or what are some of the active phrases mm -hmm. that you can use that might help a person think, oh yeah, maybe I should consider this offer. Some of it is asking the person how they see their substance use impacting their life. Mm or simply reflecting what you've identified and as non-judgmentally as you can. Yeah. Like we'd planned to work in the garden this morning, but you're hungover and didn't feel like you could do that. Yeah. How do you think alcohol is, is contributing to your daily life? Mm. How is it impacting your daily life? So some of it is just a gentle reflection, yeah. knowing that even that can be hard for people to hear. I do like the I wish because I wish is really about me and it's identifying it about me. Like it's about me wishing something different for that person. Yeah. And then it's also offering support, which is what you did. Like, how can we, how can I help you? Ultimately, I think it helps the most if the person identifies their own goals. Mm -hmm. If they say, I want to go out tonight and I want to have one drink. Yeah. And then you might say, how can I help you with that? Mm. Is there a hand signal we're going to use? If I see you going up to the bar, what should, what words should I use to remind you of that commitment? Oh, so smart. Because in that moment, that person has lost connection with that commitment um, because for, for a wide variety of reasons, whether it's yeah. a compulsion to use, whether it's they've really literally forgotten, whether it's the first drink affected them enough that they've lost track of those goals. So figuring out a plan ahead of time to support that person, if you're in the moment, uh, in a moment in which they could use more than they planned to and more than they wanted to. That, you know, it's so interesting, Dr. Riki, talking with you, the language and the caring way and the self-reflecting is really helpful when you're talking about a mental health disorder as well. So I want people to hear this. And if you're, you know, dealing with someone in your family or someone you love with depression and anxiety, this kind of language is really super helpful then as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think it's interesting that 
We don't want to normalize drug use, but we do want to make people aware when they are stigmatizing drug use. So how do you how do you navigate this tricky territory of not wanting to make drugs just okay, especially for younger kids who may not use, but you don't want to stigmatize those who are? It's a great question. I have a 12-year-old daughter and I ponder this question all the time. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately it really is about a person's control and the impact of the substance on their life. Mm -hmm. And so if either of those two are compromised, if it's having a negative effect on their life and they're not having control over their use, that's the point at which it becomes problematic. And I think making sure that we all have the opportunity to make informed decisions about our use. For example, just recently, a study came out that shows that any level of alcohol intake, any level, can contribute to long-term cognitive problems. Ah, geez, there goes my nightly glass of wine. So ah, that one glass of wine amazing. a night, exactly, that's supposed to help with your health, your cardiovascular health, may in fact also have this other impact. But And it's so hard to know, obviously, which of the medical evidence to pay attention to. Yeah. But ultimately, if we can have an informed opportunity to weigh all of that, to know, oh, I have a history of heart disease, maybe it's worth it having that one glass of wine, because I know that's a risk. I have a history of dementia in my family. Perhaps I would prefer to abstain altogether because yeah. that's a risk. So I think having a fully informed opportunity to make those decisions is essential, um, that people understand the science and yeah. the evidence behind what we do know about the impact of substance use conditions. So Dr. Rigi, I just want you to close today by offering, um, I think there's probably somebody listening right now that knows they have a problem. They haven't really liked their behavior. They haven't liked the consequences of their behavior and their choices, and they are hoping to try to turn it around. What message do you have for them? First and foremost, that people care about you. And it may not feel like it, but there are people who care about you and there are people who are not going to judge you. They're not going to cause you more shame. They are available and they want to talk with you with an open heart to learn about the struggles you've had mm. and the hopes you have for changing, changing how you use substances and how they're impacting your life. And you've also given us, you know, great language and some understanding, but what is the one piece of advice that you would give to someone who loves someone who is currently using a substance or is in this kind of territory? Number one, care about that person. Number two, have Narcan. Narcan is a medicine that reverses overdoses. And right now we have seen a terrifying increase in overdose deaths in the United States. Mm. Data came out last week that we had 93,000 people who died in the year 2020 from substance use overdoses. 93,000 people. And, and how do you administer Narcan and how do you get it? There are multiple different forms. The easiest form is a nasal spray. You literally put it in someone's nostril. Um, you push a plunger and it gives them a dose. Often, with, especially with fentanyl um, in much of our heroin supply or people who are intentionally using fentanyl, you need more than one dose. So then you repeat the process in the other nostril. Um, you can get it through a medical provider. Any medical provider can prescribe it. And you can also get it at many pharmacies. Pharmacists are authorized to dispense Narcan without a prescription after they do a, a brief training and teaching with the patient. Oh my gosh, this is such important information. I think I'm going to go get some just because I live in downtown Portland and I so often see people who look to me like they're on their last breath. Yep. 
That is really, really helpful information, Dr. Riki. Thank you so much for providing it. I, I had no idea that as a just a regular person, I could walk up and be able to carry that around in my purse. That's wonderful. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's great. great. Dr. Riki, thank you so much for your help. And for people that might be interested in reaching out directly to you, are they able to do that? Can they do that? Do you take calls? <laughs> Emails. Emails. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. So through for health, you yes. would be reachable. Yes. Yeah, because I can imagine there's going to be many people who are hearing this and they're like, I want her. <laughs> yes. I'll be like, oh. I would. I would totally. If you oh, made me thanks. give up that nightly glass of wine, I might be like, oh, I might be the first person in her office. <laughs> it's an option. Fully informed decision making. <laughs> there you go. Thank you again, Dr. Riki. It's such a pleasure to meet you and to talk with you. And thanks for all of your work. Bye-bye.